banks are holding mortgages essentially on commercial real estate. And so when the value of that real estate declines, their assets decline. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we're going to talk about the commercial real estate market, how asset owners and lenders are contending with the rising interest rates, their declining valuations, and even defaults in this environment where office tenants want smaller, newer, energy-efficient spaces that will attract workers back to the office. So joining me today to discuss all of that is Aaron McLaughlin, the Senior Economist at the Conference Board. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. So, Aaron, you were the author of this brilliant new report. Oh, thank you. Yeah, on the declining office building market. Why'd you write the report? Well, there were a couple of reasons. Um, one is after we saw the mini banking crisis of the spring, it came up that office buildings and commercial real estate in general are one of the other sort of risky assets that could be coming up for banks to deal with. So that was certainly, you know, it's very timely and we wanted to address that and take a close look at it. And the other thing is the commercial real estate market has certainly has its has had its ups and downs over the years, but the change in how we use office space, you know, coming out of COVID is different than how it's ever been before. So it's more of a structural change, not just um, simply the result of a recession or the result of high interest rates. So it seemed a really good time to take a close look at this. Okay, but what does it matter if real estate costs decline? You know, why do you think that's an issue for banks? Well, so banks are holding mortgages essentially on commercial real estate. And so when the value of that real estate declines, their assets decline. And that sort of throws off, you know, the asset liability um, mix that banks need to hold in order to be healthy and in order to sort of conduct their business, especially in an era of rising interest rates. So it's very interesting that, you know, we're sort of seeing a trifecta of higher interest rates, lower valuations for office buildings in particular. And then at the same time, the demand for office space um, is going to continue shrinking in the future. Yeah. So uh, essentially what, what banks do is, is they have a certain asset balance, as you yes. said, and they loan against that, right? So yes. it's, you know, they loan, whether it's eight, to one or 10 to one. So if they have a dollar in value, they loan eight, let's just say it's eight to one, eight times that. And so if that dollar declines, then their ability to loan goes away too. And they've got to get those, call those loans back in. 
Absolutely. And commercial real estate mortgages are, are quite different from residential mortgages. So for our folks that may not be as familiar, you know, most of them are not fixed rates. They are variable and they also come due and are constantly being refinanced about every five to seven years. And also for a lot of large real estate developers and holding companies, they're constantly using um, the money from these refinancings to, fu to fund their new projects. So um, it's a much more dynamic um, capital exchange, you know, than what exists in the residential real estate market. Right. And, and so the commercial real estate market is sort of a broader title and it includes what, right. industrial and uh, yes. distribution facilities, mm. manufacturing. This is this is the subject is strictly the office building market. Yes. Our paper focuses on the office market because that's the one that's going through such significant um, change at the moment. And that includes sort of an escalating rate of defaults. But um, office building loans make up about 17% of the whole commercial real estate market. And that's the second largest asset type within commercial real estate, the largest being multifamily residential. And as you said, the other asset types are retail, industrial, um, hotel, motel properties, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So there now, now some banks actually make the loans and then they, you mm -hmm. know, package those together and sell those off either, or, you know, which is called securitizing them. Right. So, but some of them actually hold these loans on their balance sheets, which seemed at one time like a good idea. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it doesn't seem as good, but there are certain banks you said that, and you pointed out in your paper that right. are more risky. Describe those. Yeah. So it's very, it was interesting to me. I learned that um, it is these smaller and mid-sized banks that hold a much higher percentage of investor-owned commercial real estate, including office, than larger banks. For banks that are $1 billion to $10 billion in asset size, they're holding about um, a quarter of their total assets in commercial real estate, with office being about 3% of those. And then we took a really close look at all of the banks that have been um, scrutinized or downgraded by the different ratings agencies um, so far in 2023 and did an analysis using data from FDIC to see which ones had very high ratios and percentages of investor-owned real estate. So, you know, we saw some banks, you know, that are in that sort of mid-size or regional level holding up to 44% of their assets in investor-owned commercial real estate. So, you know, for certain banks, that just will pose a lot of risk if we continue to see defaults rise. Right. So these are small and medium-sized banks. Why don't they just do what the big banks do? Why don't they just package them up and sell them? Well, most likely at this point, the valuations are sort of in decline. And so their abilities to sort of package them up and sell them and are not the same that they would have been um, before. Okay. So, and, and then, you know, you have the, it's sort of an art to try to get these things, um, you know, assessed and, you know, right. you get the valuations and mm -hmm. so forth. And banks don't have to do this every day, uh, but you do have to do it periodically, what, what's right. called mark to market, right? So, um, but they are actively adjusting 
their balance sheets um, over time here as they can, aren't they? They are. And so, you know, it's very interesting. Back during um, the years following the Great Recession, we saw also pressure on banks to add to their asset category. And, you know, they would go back and try to, you know, ask their commercial real estate um, borrowers to put more down or, you know, basically do certain activities that would rise the value of their offices. And so, and, you know, it was even called, it even has a term, uh, they would essentially do at times what could even be called pretend and extend, which is sort of interesting that that is an actual term that folks in the commercial real estate world, you know, were sort of discussing. The, the challenges around sort of repositioning these commercial real estate assets or going through some of those same um, moves that they may have made 10 or 15 years ago when pretend and extend was sort of acceptable is that the actual office assets don't have the same kind of future in this changing market. Yeah, you know, uh, when you're talking about uh, asset valuations, pretend is just not... No, <laughs> not the descriptor you want to hear. Is no, it? It, it's um, it's very unusual that that was even yeah, somebody, you know, a colloquial. Somebody yes, thought that was funny at one point. Yes. No longer. Well, so obviously, someone thought that these assets were really good assets and that they should loan against at one time. So, right. what was what was it about that era that made them good, and what changed? Well, so it's very interesting. I think there's a few significant changes that we've had. One is in a post-COVID world, it is much more acceptable for people to have hybrid work arrangements. And so if folks are really going into the office two or three days a week instead of five days a week, you know, for many CEOs and operations managers that are in charge of the real estate for their company, they're thinking, do I really need the same amount of space that I had before. They may have the same amount of employees, they may have more employees, but with people coming in different days, you don't necessarily need the same amount of space. At the same time, they want really high quality space and sort of a compelling office environment that will help lure employees back to the office. And then thirdly is with the rise in sustainability, a future that may include tracking carbon emissions from your use in real estate. Companies are also looking for a space that is very modern in its energy usage and its sustainability practices. So, you know, within the commercial real estate world, that's called sort of a, you know, flight to quality. So, you know, when folks leases are up and most commercial leases are seven to 10 years, instead of just signing up in maybe the same office space they had, they may take that opportunity to step back, go into a different building, look for a more modern amenities, a more sustainable building and a smaller footprint. Yeah, especially a smaller footprint, which means right. that the landlords have to deal with that. But there's also a lot of subleasing going on. There uh, is. Yeah, which which is at a lower rate, which then drags values down as well, because it's against, you know, it, it then reprices, you know, what's out there. But but this is, it sounds like this is all due to, um, you know, remote work or hybrid work, you know, and therefore the amount of space that was once needed for, you know, everyone being there all at once 
is not the space that you need it now. And we're hearing, you know, right. example in, in, in Manhattan that, you know, what roughly half the, the space is not being used currently. So that, I mean, that's a big slog of space and a lot of money. It is. And so what seems to be trending, so we're seeing vacancy, including sublet space that's on the market at about 19% nationally. And that's a rise of 3% in just two years. So that's a, a pretty quick rise. And so what we're seeing, which presents the risk to the banks, is that folks that hold these office buildings, you know, investors, commercial real estate firms, et cetera, if they have some some buildings that are sort of drop where folks are dropping out of them and they're, you know, maybe they're 30% vacant or 50% vacant, that's when they start looking at these buildings and make strategic decisions to default on them. You know, and we've seen that especially in some of our larger CBDs and areas such as Midtown Manhattan and elsewhere, where it's not even necessarily that the real estate investor has, you know, just can't make the payment, although that certainly has happened too. It's also in sometimes a strategic default where in some of these older buildings, especially buildings that are over 20 years, if they become increasingly empty, it just becomes a building that they see as obsolete and a drag on their own portfolio. Yeah, CBD being central business yes. district, and that's where you see you know most of the trouble. So there, you, you really got you have two things though happening at once. One is the sort of the downsizing and and, and the less the lowering of the need for right. space. At the same time, you have higher interest rates. You know, we yes, highest in twenty two years. So in the past, when you've had, have we ever had this confluence of events happen at the same time? I don't think so, right? I don't think so either. No. I mean, in in my sort of adult lifetime, we had sort of um, some central business district office anxiety after September 11th, when, you know, folks really thought, you know, are people going to want to return to downtown offices? And we also, after the Great Recession, you know, which was largely about residential real estate, you know, we saw some issues around commercial real estate, but nothing like this. You know, the most similar situation um, is probably the decline of our malls, you know, which uh, which is about a change in human behavior, just like the office market and that. But it's it's really not quite the same. But I think if we were to draw any parallel in my mind, it would be, you know, we started shopping online, less people are going to malls, and we've seen a decline in sort of old school shopping malls. But um, it is really interesting to me that human behavior so often drives, you know, our buildings, our infrastructure, and even in this case, is affecting the banking system. Yeah. And in the past, you, you know, you, you haven't dealt with with both of them at the same time for right. for different reasons. You've had you've had higher interest rates and, you know, but when you've got a lease that goes seven to 10 years, you know, it, it doesn't have the immediacy of effect. Exactly. But it's yeah. this combination of events that we that we're dealing with now. Right. And I think that's so this is an issue now, and it's an issue in part because about 46% of office building loans are coming due between now and 2025. So, and we don't expect interest rates, you know, really to go down very much, maybe not at all between now and 2025. So in that scenario, you know, 46% is quite a lot of office buildings that have to come to terms with this, who's, you know, 
investors and owners need to work with the banks or banks who do not want to be in the business of owning office buildings have to find a way you know, to deal with this. And then, but the actual issue of sort of the downsizing of the national office market, you know, will certainly continue well beyond when interest rates may come down just because of the structural changes in how we use our office space. We're discussing banking risk in the office real estate market. We're going to take a short break and be right back. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the conference board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem solving for your organization. Membership at the conference board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a Conference Board member today by visiting www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined by Aaron McLaughlin, the Senior Economist at the Conference Board in our Economy, Strategy, and Finance Center. Okay, so Aaron, now there's this great risk to the yes. to these small and medium banks, but that's a that creates a spillover effect. We saw that earlier this year for the whole banking system. Uh, describe what could happen here, and what are we seeing from regulators? Well, we've seen um, some guidance come out earlier um, this summer from both the Fed, the FDIC, and a bunch of their other sort of federal partners providing some guidance for banks and lenders and how they should try and work with um, commercial real estate owners and loan holders in the short term. In the long term, there are some proposed regulations for them to increase their assets and, in, and sort of increase their, you know, protect their, their liabilities, but those rules will not go into effect until um, 2028, actually. So that is a ways away. In the meantime, because small and medium-sized banks are the ones that have the highest risk level, what many people think and what I think may happen is we will see acquisitions of some of these small and medium-sized banks by larger banks. Some of these acquisitions may be, you know, at the encouragement of uh, FDIC and other federal regulators in order for some of these banks that have a very, very high portfolio of investor-owned real estate to avoid, you know, basically going under as a result of becoming vulnerable to the situation. Yeah. And, and you know, we've learned um, multiple times now, including, you know, from some of these bank failures earlier in the year right. that sometimes, you know, their customers just need a whiff of this and exactly. it creates a run on the bank. And right. And and all that means is that everybody starts pulling their money out because they don't want to get caught on the wrong side of that. So it can go fast. Here. It can go fast. And yeah. and that is that's in part because of the digital banking system that we now have. So, you know, if if some folks hear that, you know, maybe a bank that they're dealing with that's a regional bank is one of these banks that's, you know, a third or more invested in investor-owned commercial real estate, and they and they start hearing these things and we get our run on 
um, on withdrawals, a digital run, um, it we could ha potentially have a similar situation that we saw earlier this spring. Okay, so that would result in, you know, obviously building defaults, you know, valuations mm -hmm. on balance sheets then dropping, you know, those banks, you know, having trouble runs on banks. It also would mean that they'd have to increase the capital. Right. Um, so doesn't the Fed just pop in here and just, uh, you know, increase loans so that the banks can shore up their balance sheets? I mean, there is a possibility for that to happen, but I think that there is a cautiousness that's happening at the same time, you know, because no one quite knows how advanced this problem may be. And I think that is the reason that the Fed has put out guidance, you know, requesting that banks try to work with the office building lenders. Well, that, you know, whether that means continuing their loans, giving them loan extensions and sort of trying to pace this out a bit. Certainly not the pretended extend, you know, that we saw in years past, but sort of trying to slow the pace potentially. And so that so that that doesn't have to happen. You know, we're sort of in a time period where banks are being very strict with their lending practices at the same time. And for them, increasing their capital means increasing costs. So, you know, there's certainly several dynamics at play. Yeah. And you don't want to create a moral hazard where the Fed just steps right. and saves any bank. And so that therefore they they continue very risky lending practice. Exactly. Yes. Right? You want to hold right. them accountable, but at the same time, you don't want to hold them all accountable the same day. Right. <laughs> you want to slow it down. Yes. And try to deal yeah, with it. You don't, want yes. to, you don't want to create a giant a crash of the system, you know, or another banking crisis like we saw in 2008, 2009. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, okay. So beyond banks, there are other institutions and stakeholders that should be watching this. Well, you know, who, you know, kind of tell us that your list of who should keep an eye on this. Certainly. So it's very interesting. So, um, you know, banks own about 40% of, you know, commercial mortgages, essentially, but the others are held by, as you mentioned before, commercial mortgage backed securities, essentially, REITs, real estate investment trusts, pensions, you know, own a lot of real estate, um, life insurance companies. And then, of course, you know, there's a great deal of real estate that's owned by occupants and businesses that occupy their real estate. And that really, you know, in our in our paper, we have some really interesting tables. Um, and, and I've sort of excluded some of the occupied real estate from our percentages and noted that because it's just not necessarily doesn't pose the same risk, right? If you're a company and you, owe, if you're a hospital system and you own your real estate, you know, most likely you're not going to default on it because you have to maintain your hospital and your medical system and your medical office buildings. Um, same thing if you own manufacturing plants. So, so that is a different category. But yes, besides banks, we have commercial mortgage-backed securities, REITs, life insurance companies, pensions that are holding real estate as well. So essentially, let's just take the pension, for example. Mm -hmm. If the value of those assets goes down, it could recreate a negative return on pensions. It could. Right, which means that uh, whoever's the owner of the pension unions or right. companies would have to put cash in in order to shore up the pension. So there, so this could eat cash throughout the whole system to make up for the, um, for the revaluations. It could. So if you were the manager of a pension fund, you know, might be looking at 
how you've allocated your assets, how many of them are in the stock market, bonds versus commercial real estate, what kind of commercial real estate you're owning. I certainly think that most um, fund managers and, and, and REIT managers are considering that now. Okay, so let's flip it around. What if you're a customer? Meaning, what if you're a tenant in, in, in one of these buildings? Doesn't that create these huge opportunities for you to renegotiate your leases and save a boatload of money? It can, depending on the kind of quality you want in your in your office space. So as we said before, you know, what we're seeing is what the commercial real estate folks call that flight to quality. So if you're thinking, well, you know, our office space is a little tired. It's not as it's not going to lure people back into the office. It's not as sustainable as I would like. And you decide, well, I'm going to go into a new building, a sleeker building you're probably not going to save any money. You know, you might get a little bit more of a break than you would have, you know, a few years ago. And, but, um, but it's you probably- could upgrade. You could upgrade, you could get breaks on camp, uh, common area maintenance. You could get yes. new facilities, yeah. new, you know, new finishings, yeah. new layout and so forth. In yeah. other words, you can negotiate a better situation, even you if can... it's the same amount of money. Yes, you may not have to spend a lot more money, whether, you know, that maybe you would have in the past if you decided to have a much nicer space than you did before. And so, you know, that's really where we're going to see the obsolescence is in those older buildings. So as tenants leases, you know, roll up over the course of, you know, whether they have a seven, 10 year lease, what have you, and they go into, you know, that flight to newer buildings, we're going to see, especially in you know, urban cores, the obsolescence of some office buildings that were built in the 1970s and 80s and so forth. And, you know, just like sort of the situation that we're in where we haven't seen a decline in need at the same time as a rise in interest rates within this asset class, I don't think we've ever seen in the office market where buildings are really becoming obsolete. And I, I think that will be very interesting. You know, the, the modern American city with a lot of office buildings didn't really happen in most cities until the 1970s and 80s. And so I this is going to be just a significant change for a lot of downtowns. Yeah. So but, you know, at the same time here, we've got a weird situation where residential real estate. Right. Um, you know, is is uh, low in supply. So yes. it, it, maybe it's not in the same place, but but you know, simplistically, why don't we just snap our fingers and convert these office buildings <laughs> to residential and fix two problems with- uh, I know. know. Yeah. Well, it would be great if it was that easy, <laughs> but it is not. Well, so. oh, you're going to tell me it's hard, huh? It's hard. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, we're doing a series. So the next paper uh, after <laughs> this one that was financially based is more on, you know, the reality of asset reuse when it comes to office buildings. And- so unfortunately, you know, an office building is almost like its own business, right? And so, and that's why these valuations are coming down and they're not as valuable. So if you take, say, an empty office building that was built in the 70s or 80s and you think, all right, it's almost empty. I cannot get office tenants. I'm going to make it an apartment building or a condo because we have a housing shortage. The amount of money that it would take to turn most of, you know, put zoning re and regulatory stuff aside for a moment and just think about the amount of money it would take to rehab the building into residential, uh, a residential property is, makes it cost prohibitive, 
prohibitive in almost every situation. Because you can't. Well, first of all, most office buildings have a big core, which yes. is elevators and all that. Yep. Too, too big. Yes. Uh, they have one or two bathrooms. They have <laughs> limited kitchen. So all, you then say, okay, we're going to carve that up into 10 apartments. <laughs> It's yes, at least it, 10 bathrooms, at least 10 kitchens. Exactly. So you really have to replumb, rewire. So you have to take it down to a shell. And then at that point, you got to replace windows. And then you go, yes, why don't we just knock the thing down? I, Absolutely. So yeah. And there's asbestos in there and all sorts of hazards. And Ooh. yeah, most office buildings, they're stacked. You know, you just think of them. You know, as a little Lego set, there's a plumbing stack, there's elevator, big core stack, and there's a long distance between the core and the window line. And in just as you said, Steve, in residential properties, you need lots of windows, you need lots of light, everybody has to have a kitchen in their apartment, everybody has to have at least one bathroom in their apartment. And so the amount of work to take down an office building and to really reuse any of it into a modern residential building is just cost prohibitive. So when you said that uh, investing in high rise office buildings has its ups and downs, you weren't just talking about the elevators, were you? <laughs> it's a it's a big deal. All right. Well, Aaron, McLaughlin, thanks so much for joining us today and explaining this. We'll look forward to your next paper. And Thank you for having me. Podcast. Yeah. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in economics, geopolitics, public policy, ESG, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues with any of your coworkers who happen to come to the office, with any of your friends, we know that they're gonna to wanna to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.